Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, the exhibition Reflections, Paintings of Florida, 1865 to 1965, at the Orlando Museum of Art. We started off with the earlier paintings. Now we are looking at paintings that are clearly 20th century. Archie Carr was the first person to promote the protection of Florida sea turtles. He's seen as the intellectual father and grandfather to hundreds and thousands of sea turtle researchers throughout America and the world. A former dairy worker remembers keeping the cows happy. That and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. The exhibition Reflections, Paintings of Florida, 1865 to 1965, is a selection of 78 paintings curated from the extensive collection of lifelong Floridian Hyatt Brown and his wife Cece. The exhibition includes images of Florida from artists such as German painter Hermann Herzog, book illustrator N.C. Wyeth, and landscape artist Martin Johnson Heed, who moved to St. Augustine in 1883. Jan Clanton is Associate Curator for Adult Education at the Orlando Museum of Art and shows us that the exhibition opens with paintings from the mid-19th century. They were all paintings that were really used as marketing Florida. And some of the scenes are the most bizarre scenes I've ever seen. They're dark and they make uh, having a boat trip down the Oklawaha River look like the most exciting thing you could possibly do. You know, we today think of Florida and its beaches, but long ago it was a state that was very exotic and you could kind of have the sense of going to a foreign nation just right down here in the United States. Henry Flagler, who was building the railroad down here in Florida, was very influential and wanted this state to get lots of marketing. And so these large paintings that you see in this part of the exhibition were means of driving audience for his railroad, and they brought everybody to St. Augustine, the terminus at the time. And so besides having this very exotic Florida that he wanted everybody to see, there are also some beautiful paintings of St. Augustine. And you pick out the old fort, but it shows us a St. Augustine from an earlier era. It's quite beautiful. Many of the paintings in the Reflections exhibition depict scenes you would expect, such as exotic tourist destinations, old buildings in St. Augustine, and beautiful landscapes. As Jan Clanton points out, there are also some surprising images. I don't think we think of Frederick Remington as coming to Florida. We think of him out in the Wild West. 
but he was here because he was a friend of Teddy Roosevelt's, and Teddy wanted him to go with the troops to Cuba. This is an interesting painting in the sense that it is monochromatic. It's black and white. But Remington was a famous illustrator. And back when he was illustrating, they didn't have color illustrations. And so he did all of his work that was going to be submitted to publications in black and white. This is rather interesting because he signed it twice. You know, Remington had a fairly substantial ego. And if any of this was going to be cropped, he wanted to make sure his signature was included, no matter how the uh, publication cropped the work. Uh, we also have a painting here of a scene from the Civil War. Now, you can tell by looking at it, it was painted in 1880. There isn't a drop of blood. It is a fierce battle, but nobody seems to be injured. So, again, you have this idea of presenting Florida in a way that really was probably captured in somebody's studio, not on-site and an actual uh event. That way we could make sure Florida was appealing to all audiences. That Civil War painting is an interpretation of the one major battle that took place in Florida, the Battle of Olusti. The largest collection of stained glass work by Lewis Comfort Tiffany is in Winter Park, Florida at the Charles Hosmer Morse Museum of American Art. Tiffany was also a painter whose work is included in the Reflections exhibition. It's of a natural bridge down in Miami. I think most of us think of Tiffany with glass and his magnificent works that were left at his home up in New York State. But here is an example of his artwork, and I think that uh, gives every visitor to the museum a chance to see him in new light. One of the paintings that particularly stands out in the exhibition, Reflections, Paintings of Florida, 1865 to 1965, is by modernist painter Arnold Blanche. 1935 was the time when the WPA, the uh, agency that helped to put artists back to work after the Great Depression, uh, seemed to appeal to artists that were coming to America from Europe who had had an influence of modernism over there through the Bauhaus and any number of uh, early surrealists. And here you see a Florida that has streams of black and a sky of gray and very stylized trees. But it uh, gives a nice counterbalance to all the other flora and fauna that we see in more traditional paintings. It's uh, a wonder that the Browns had such an eclectic uh, approach to their collection on Florida art, and it gives a lot of piquancy to the exhibition that you see on display. Fort Pierce artist A.E. Backus is a famous artist in his own right, but is probably best remembered as the inspiration of Florida's highwaymen artists. The Highwaymen are a group of African-American landscape painters that began working in Florida in the mid-20th century following the style of Beanie Bacchus. We have one Beanie Bacchus from 1935 that is very atypical. I was surprised to see it. It looks an awful lot like something that maybe Norman Rockwell might have been doing at the same time. It shows two boys who have just filled their tummies with watermelon and they're taking a nap and are, have no concerns in the world. Uh, it is something that brings home 
who was living in Florida at the time. The other two by Beanie Bacchus or Albert Ernest Bacchus show more typical scenes. This one of a old fishing boat that is up for repairs. But the classic one is up here at the beginning of the exhibition and it captures exactly what made him so famous and such an inspiration for all the highwaymen. This painting of a Florida wetland scene with the fowl, the birds resting in the trees, and these wonderful clouds that show the re pink reflection of light. The Reflections exhibition includes paintings of nature, historic sites, and the people of Florida. Jan Clanton. This is an artist that I had not heard of. His name's Waldo Pierce, but he has almost a cartoon of none other than Ernest Hemingway coming to Key West to go fishing. But uh, Ernest Hemingway is unlike other fishermen. He doesn't bring a rod and reel. He brought a gun. It looks like a blunderbust, and he's shooting the sharks that way. Now, I look at this, and from an art historical standpoint, it looks like Watson and the Shark by none other than Copley. But, you know, it's that same sense of capturing all the foment in the water and the excitement of a fishing trip right here in really what you would call uh, Florida colors, pinks and greens and blues. We also have some other paintings that seem to capture the people coming to Florida to just enjoy themselves, whether they are outside with family or trying to swim like Ernest Lawson's famous painting down here, or even Frederick uh, Friesecke's memory paintings of palm trees with pink ocean and pink sky. They really seem to capture all the fun and memories everybody has of their first Florida vacation. While the Seminole tribe is not indigenous to Florida, they arrived in the 1700s, they are the Native Americans most closely associated with the state. The Seminole are represented in two contrasting works in the Reflections Collection. These two works, I think, are very provocative uh, being shown together. One shows an older Seminole who is dressed in his regalia almost in a formal, almost regal presentation. And next to it is a very stylized depiction of a Seminole family escaping into the only way to describe it is a swamp that is overshadowed by vultures. There is an ominous quality that really changes and forces you to reassess the both paintings together. Florida changed dramatically in the time period covered in this exhibition. Images are included that look at Florida from just after the Civil War through the mid-20th century. Jan Clanton. The large painting in the center is by Thomas Hart Benton, a very famous regionalist, and he uh, shows his typical style where there seems to be lots of undulation and action. It's a wonderful example of his work. 
And on either side of it are paintings by Andre Smith. He is the founder of the Maitland Art Center. And it was Andre Smith who came to Central Florida because he was a friend of Annie Russell, who, of course, is the famous actress uh, that the theater at Rollins College is named for. Andre Smith came here and set up a colony, uh, Milton Avery, eventually came down and painted in Florida. But again, you have three different looks at Florida, and certainly in this exhibition. We started off with the earlier paintings. Now we are looking at paintings that are clearly 20th century and show influences of lots of different styles and trends in the art world in general. Artistic styles made dramatic shifts between 1865 and 1965, and many different approaches to painting are represented in the Reflections exhibition. I think the, the nicest way is to start off by showing and talking about Martin Johnson Heed, who was part of the second generation of the Hudson River School, which was America's first style of painting. But he was part of the group that was referred to as the Luminist. This was post-Civil War, and they had a very wide, horizontal, compositional format to lend lots of peace and quiet and calm to a country that was overwhelmed by the war. We also have George Ennis here, who represents the Tonalist group. You, I mentioned the early modernists, but we have several, many paintings that are uh, French Impressionist-inspired. Ernest Lawson was part of the eight part of the first American realist. And then many of the more recent paintings, as I mentioned, seem to have almost a cartoon-esque quality. But, you know, we have red grooms. We have a lot of artists. Uh, Roy Lichtenstein was a pop artist. So in this exhibition of 78 paintings, you can really see all major American art history trends that started after 1865. And I think there are many levels on which this exhibition can be appreciated, whether it's getting a feel for old Florida or seeing Florida the way you first saw it when you came to Florida, or looking at a progression of art styles in America, or just enjoying a idyllic pastime in Florida. It's all right here. Jan Clanton is Associate Curator for Adult Education at the Orlando Museum of Art. She showed us the exhibition Reflections, Paintings of Florida, 1865 to 1965, from the collection of Cece and Hyatt Brown.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Join us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, explore our collection at the Library of Florida History, and find out about great events like our upcoming cruise commemorating 500 years of Florida history. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, the Society Report. That's myfloridahistory.org. In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This moment in Florida history features historian Gary Mormino. In 1513, as the ships of Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon sailed along the coast of the land, La Florida, the sailors spotted a cape of land jutting into the ocean. This they named Cabo Cañaveral, Cape of Canes, because the reeds reminded them of sugarcane. It remains one of America's oldest place names. The ships anchored here to take on water near a river believed to be Jupiter Inlet. Here they suffered their first casualties when warriors from local Indian tribes attacked the party. Later they made note of an Indian village that was probably the site of today's Key Biscayne, home of the Tiquesta. Here on 21st of April 1513, they encountered a rush of water so powerful that it forced the ships backward. They named this place El Cabo de las Corrientes, the Cape of Currents. Later voyages would refer to the Gulf Stream, whose wind and currents would guide future ships to and from Spain and the West Indies. University of South Florida historian Gary Marmino. This moment in Florida history was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. song I wrote, you might want to sing it note for note, don't worry, be happy. According to a former dairy worker, happy cows produce better milk. Janie Gould has more. Pennock Plantation, an early dairy in Jupiter, used to sell certified raw milk. That meant the cows had to be practically bathed before they were milked. Judson Minear's father managed the dairy for Henry Pennock starting in 1915. And when Judson was a boy, one of his jobs was to wash the cows. You know, Florida is very wet. When there's wet, there's mud, and the mud has to come off the cows. We were producing certified milk, so they had to be good and clean before we put the machines on them. Since it was certified raw milk, it wasn't pasteurized, so it really went from them to the bottle. It went direct to the bottle without hitting air. It was a very good system. Now, you were telling me that the owners of the dairy, the Pennocks, were Quakers. Abram Lydon Pennock, Jr. was my great-grandfather, and he was from a Quaker family from the Philadelphia area. 
How did there being Quakers, how did that affect the dairy business, the way they ran the dairy? Very peaceful. The Quaker religion produces men who are very calm, very peace-loving, very easygoing, and that's the way they treated their cows. They treated them about as well as they did their own wife. Uncle Henry had a sign in his office said, always speak to a cow as you would your wife. Well, there was an ad, I guess it was Borden, contented cows give better milk, something like that. Was that the truth? That's true, and more milk, too. If they're contented, they do produce more milk. So you never raised your voice to a cow, right? Theoretically. <laughs> In other words, sometimes the situation demanded it. Right. When you get kicked, you do respond. When you were a boy, your mother raised chickens in what's now downtown Jupiter. That's right. Yeah. Palm Point was a wooded country area in those days, and we had several thousand hens laying eggs. So what was your job on the chicken farm? I was uh, responsible to gather the eggs and, and clean the chicken houses and cut the yard and just ordinary chores around, you know, that a high school boy can do. We had skunks and possums. Once in a while, you have a wildcat or a fox, you know. We would go out at night looking for them. Sometimes we'd find them, sometimes we wouldn't, especially if the chickens were disturbed. You could hear them and go out looking for what's disturbing them. Now, did your mother raise the chickens primarily for their eggs or to sell them as fryers? She raised the hens for eggs, but she did grow frying-sized chickens and usually a different breed of chicken, the fryers would be. You learned how to slaughter chickens, right? Oh, yes. You hang them upside down and take a knife and cut their juggler. Did it get to be kind of like an assembly line business? Yes, ma'am. Exactly. Then we dip them in hot boiling water and take the feathers off, take them to the market. What do you remember about Jupiter growing up? What was the town like? Well, the town was small. There was only two or three hundred people. We were at least a mile away from the nearest girl, and we always skinny dipped in the river. And that was the most exciting thing that we did. No alligators in the Loxahatchee? Not very many alligators in the river at that time. What do you think of the ways in which Jupiter has grown? Oh, I think it's wonderful, especially the Abacoa area where there's so much education and experimental things going on. I'm glad to see Jupiter growing. The Pennock family sold the dairy property in 1954. The Minear family bought the herd and a few years later moved it to land west of Palm City. They sold out in 1986. Judson Minear still lives in Palm City. Janie Gould prepared that report. Be happy. Put a smile on your face. Don't bring everybody down like this. Don't worry. It will soon pass, whatever it is. Don't worry. Be happy. This is Florida Frontiers. Many Floridians have played vital roles in the history of the environmental movement, as Bill Dudley reports, Archie Carr was the first person to promote the protection of Florida sea turtles. An injured sea turtle swims lazily in a tank at the Loggerhead Marine Life Center in Juneau Beach. Open to the public, the center is one of a number of turtle preservation sites around the state and around the world, all part of the legacy of a man named Archie Carr. He's seen as the intellectual 
father and grandfather to hundreds and thousands of sea turtle researchers throughout America and the world. FSU historian Frederick R. Fritz Davis. His 2007 book, The Man Who Saved Sea Turtles, may be the first biography of the naturalist who died in 1987. Archie Carr was born in Alabama. Early in life, he developed both a love of nature and a passion for language. In the 1930s, he enrolled at the University of Florida. He started out as an undergraduate studying for a degree in English. And it was that appreciation of the written word that continued to show up in his writings. But after changing his major, Archie Carr earned the school's first doctorate in zoology in 1937. The same year, he and Marjorie Harris Carr were married. Thus began a life of teaching, research, and travel that would take the Carrs around the world as well as into the Florida backwoods. In the 40s, Carr pioneered identification of different species of sea turtles, of which relatively little was known. In the 50s, he began studying turtles exclusively, traveling to nesting beaches around the Caribbean. And that's when he began focusing on trying to determine whether the sea turtles migrated. He had anecdotal evidence of this from the turtle fishermen scattered around the Caribbean. But Carr was the first to document scientifically that turtles migrated from their nesting beaches across hundreds of miles, even thousands of miles, only to return once again to the very same nesting beaches. In time, Carr's research, his efforts to educate the public, and his best-selling book, The Windward Road, would literally save several species of turtles from worldwide extinction. Carr was unique in his ability to communicate his passion for his subject. In 11 books and hundreds of articles, he brought a conservation ethic to a wide audience by combining science and literature, as Marjorie Carr remembered in 1994. Well, Archie could see things better than anybody I've seen. I mean, he would see with a poet's eye, and he enjoyed the natural world from that viewpoint. So it was a combination of scientists plus poet. And as a pioneer of the environmental movement, his work helped change the way Americans saw the natural world. It seems so logical to both of us. If you're going to be, you know, civilized, the wonders of this earth should have the same respect, or maybe even more respect, that we give to the wonders of man-made creations our artistic creations. Early in their lives together, the Cars bought land near Payne's Prairie, south of Gainesville. Through all his travels, Archie never forgot his Florida connection. In later years, he was greatly concerned with the state's environmental degradation. Wherever he was traveling, Florida served as the biological touchstone, sort of a warning for conservation campaigns. He saw the dramatic changes as more and more people moved to the state and development took hold. Over 50 years, Carr became a beloved figure on the University of Florida campus. In a 1991 documentary, former student Bob Graham talked about his teacher. Archie's legacy to us is that he cared. He had studied Florida as a scientist, but his commitment went beyond an intellectual one to an emotional commitment to preserve what was best of the stuff of our state. Archie Carr wrote, The process of saving wilderness has two nominally separate aspects, prevention of extinction of species and maintenance of wild landscapes. To some extent, the two are the same. Today, the Archie Carr National Wildlife Refuge spans a 20-mile section of Florida coastline south of Melbourne, where sea turtles crawl ashore to lay their eggs each year. 
In Florida and around the world, people work to ensure the survival of this ancient creature. I would say his writing is a profound legacy. Most of his books are still in print. But I think possibly his greatest legacy, the way that the sea turtle populations have recovered over the past two decades, certainly has to be a testament to Archie Carr's efforts. Historian Frederick R. Davis. His book, The Man Who Saved Sea Turtles, is published by Oxford University Press. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and like us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.